It was 1965, and IBM knew they had a problem. So they hired a man that I'm sure his parents wanted his name to be pronounced as Gert Hofstede. Since he's German, I'm sure that's exactly how they set it up. But Gert was hired to come into IBM and to help them figure out the problem. And the problem was this. When IBM would do business around the world, they would find that some of their pitches and some of their approaches would be successful in certain countries. And then there would be other countries in which it was not successful, in which nobody seemed to respond. And so Gert began to work the problem. And eventually he came up with what he called the cultural dimensions theory. And he discovered that there were, uh, along these six different dimensions, he realized countries do things differently. And I want you to pay attention, especially to his second uh, dimension there called individualism. The highest score out of 100 across the board is a 91. And guess who gets ownership of the 91 for individualism? American. See, Gert realized that if you go to China and you pitch this way and you say, you know what, if you get this product, you're going to find yourself surpassing all of your peers, you're going to be outperforming them, you're going to get better wages, people are going to say, why would I want that? So instead, here's what you pitch. The company's going to succeed, your family's going to do better, and it's going to benefit the nation. And then they would say, all right, sign me up. See what... Um, what Gert began to realize is that there is a difference simply between geographic distance and cultural difference. In other words, you can travel somewhere that is closer and find that there's a larger cultural gap and cultural divide between those two places. So even, even though somewhere is closer geographically doesn't mean that there would be a closer connection to your culture. And I think if we realize that and apply that to even historic distance... When we study the New Testament today, we need to realize that everybody has the same historic difference today between when the New Testament was written and today, but we don't all have the same cultural distance. There are certain cultures, as they read the Bible, they're going to find themselves resonating with it. They're going to find certain aspects about community and about living together that they relate to, but we are going to find that there's a large distance between where we are and the people in the Bible. See, there are some cultures today that are mutually dependent and community-oriented. And then there are some cultures that are individualistic and live independent lives. Which of those two categories do you think best describes Americans in general today? See, what our individualism does is it creates almost this Grand Canyon-like gap between us and the people of the New Testament. And the result or the implications of it is going to be twofold. First, our individualism will often blind us to the communal aspect in certain scriptures that we read. And our individualism will make it very hard for us to learn how to live together as a community today. And so we want to explore both of these aspects of our individualism. We're going to start illustrating how it may blind us in scripture by looking at John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man they begin to have a discussion about the origins of his blindness. Was he blind at birth? Was it because of his own sin or because of the sin of his parents? But very early in John, in John chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus heals the man. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud out of the saliva, and he spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then the blind man went away, washed, and came back, and he was able to see. 
And it's interesting because there are still 34 verses left in John 9, and we've had the miracle. We would think that, that, that this is the ending, the climax of the story, but really the, the miracle serves as almost a conversation starter. The miracle is like the domino at the beginning of a progression of things that Jesus wants to address. And so the townspeople begin to talk. Some say as they see the blind man, they say, yep, that was the blind man who used to be sitting there by the pool. And others will say, no, no, it's a different guy. It's not the same guy. And the Pharisees say, don't worry, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And so they call the man to them and they ask him about it. And they're not convinced by his answer. So they decide they're going to get the parents and they invite the parents and they ask him, is this the man? And here we find is their response in chapter 9, verse 20. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So what was it that the parents were afraid of? It says they were afraid of the Jews, but it's not as if the people of the Jews, these Jewish leaders were what they were really afraid of. What they were afraid of was the power and the authority that these people had, and not just generally the power and authority they had, but the power and authority they had to put people out of the synagogue. They could decide who was in, and they could also decide who was out. See, as a people today, that's really hard for us to understand why that would be a big deal. In fact, I think if somebody said, if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to kick you out of the community. You know what I think most of us would do? You can't kick me out of the community because I'm leaving. For us, we can find community as easily as we can find plastic bags. That, that if this church doesn't want me, I'll go to that church or that church or that church. That the idea of getting kicked out of one group to us doesn't really seem like a very big deal, does it? We can discard and replace communities so easily. But see, for much of human history, lives were built on three supporting pillars. The three pillars are the nuclear family, the extended family, and the local intimate community. You needed to build your life on these three pillars if you hoped to have any sort of flourishing at all in your life. See, if you had nothing to eat, you would look to one of these three pillars to feed you. Using our language today, these three pillars were the welfare system. If you were sick, you would look to one of these three pillars to help bring you back to health. In our language today, they were the healthcare system. If you needed to learn something, they were the ones who taught you. They were the education system. If you needed extra hands to help you build your house, it would come from this group of people. So they were also the construction industry. When you would get old and you couldn't work anymore, these are the people who would take care of you. They were the pension fund. If your house was destroyed by fire, these are the people who would come and help you rebuild it. They were the insurance company. If you were in a financial bind and you needed money, these would be the ones who would lend it to you. It was the banking industry. If you needed protection or justice, these are the ones who would provide it for you. They were the judicial and the police system. See, these parents know. They are afraid of the destruction of one of their life's pillars, their local intimate community. 
So to be put out of the synagogue would be like having a day in which you find out that your health insurance has been canceled and you've been blacklisted by all health insurance companies. It's the same day that you find out that your house insurance policy has been canceled and a few hours later you find out that your house has burned down and you find out a few hours later that your bank is no, gonna, no longer going to service you anymore and you've been blacklisted from banks and it's the same day you find out that you've lost your job and it's the same day that you're told you can't go to school anymore. That's what it would feel like to be put out of the synagogue. And that's why the parents are afraid of the Jews because they're afraid to be put out of synagogue. But that's why the man's approach is pretty shocking. He takes a different approach. When they questioned him, he affirmed what Jesus did, and he affirmed who Jesus must be. And here's the result for him in John 9, 34. They answered him, you were born entirely in sin, and you are trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Kicked out of the community. A very bad day. But the irony of John 9 is that when we get to the end of John 9, for most of us as individualistic people coming from an individualistic society, we're satisfied with the ending. I mean, the guy was blind. Now he can see, so he can go out and get a job for himself. He can go rent an apartment. He can do all of these sorts of things that any individuals who learn to see can do. But if you were part of that original audience, you would be really wrestling with the question, is this man really better off? Because you could choose, if you had to choose to either be blind, without any family support, without any community support, or with family support and community support, or to be able to see, but to be isolated and left alone, which would you choose? See, that original audience of Jesus would be wondering, is he really any better off? He can see, but in the process, he had to give up and to lose all of his community support, at least his immediate family, because his parents have have decided which way they're going to go. And he would have been put out of the synagogue. See, that original audience may be wondering, does life really get better when one chooses to follow Jesus? That's why we have to have John chapter 10. John chapter 10 focuses on the goodness of Jesus' leadership and also the benefit to the flock. The culmination of that, I think we find in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that do not belong to this flock. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is not just gathering up individuals, healing them, and then sending them on his merry way. He is establishing a community of people who will live together under his shepherding oversight. He is bringing them into one flock. Essentially, what Jesus is telling them is if you lose any of these supporting pillars, it will be replaced. The supporting pillar of an intimate community will be replaced. And even a supporting pillar of family. Jesus himself will replace with a new community. Jesus addresses this explicitly in Mark 3. When he says, who are my mothers? Who is my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around them, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. See, what Jesus is saying is that his healings will not leave us worse off. They will leave us better off. If a community, a family is sacrificed in the process of following Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new family. And if an intimate community is sacrificed in the process of following Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a new community to which to belong. 
And of course, as we continue to read the scriptures, we find out this one flock will come to be called what? It'll be called the church, over which Jesus is the chief shepherd. The church is the replacement community for all those who have been left out of another community. But again, for most of us as Americans, we have almost this so what attitude about that. What do we do with these teachings? And part of the reason it's so hard for us is because it, it seems like we build our lives on different pillars. Today, people will say that the American's life is built on three pillars, the state, the market, and the nuclear family. The state has programs and institutions that promise to provide us with things if we lack or unable to provide them for ourselves. The market, as tangibly represented by your company, promises to provide us and to give us the things that we need for survival. You may even consider moving across country, but only if that company promises to continue to promise you your salary. And oftentimes, maybe sometimes they need to pay you a little bit more in order to give you the incentive to do it. But you do it with the assurance that the company or the market will take care of you. And then the third pillar, ironically, of the nuclear family is the one that is most in jeopardy today. That is the one that people are saying of family. Well, I used to believe that family would always be there, but I'm just not so sure anymore. See, I live 1,500 miles away from my parents, and no one gasped. No one said, that's terrible, or that's tragic, or that's so shocking to us, because it's normal that we would move away from our original nuclear family, because we believe that there is a way that we can continue to live without that. But I want to imagine there being a conversation between a, a, somebody who lived in the first century and someone living today asking the question, how could you possibly risk living so far away from your family? They would ask me, Craig, what happens if you don't eat? If you have no food, to which I would say, well, there's a food bank and there's unemployment assistance for me. Craig, what if you get sick? Who's going to take care of you? And I would say, I have insurance and there's a hospital and they will take care of me. Craig, how are you going to learn anything? Well, there's a school, and I pay my tuition to go there, and they teach me. Craig, how can one man build a house? To which I would say, first of all, if you think only men can build houses. And then I would say, actually, there's a construction company, and I can pay them, and they will build me my house. Craig, when you get old and too sick to work, how do you plan to survive? I say, well, retirement savings and Social Security. And they say, what happens if the house burns down? And I say, don't worry, I've got insurance. How does your uncle lend you money? To which I'd say, first of all, I would never ask my uncle to lend me money. Maybe my parents, but definitely never my uncle. And don't worry, I have a bank. And that bank is willing to lend me money. Craig, who protects you when you're in a dangerous situation? I say, the police. Each of those answers represent the fact that I live an independent life. I don't require any ongoing relationship with my family of origin or with my extended family. And in many ways, I don't even need an intimate community. But my answers also highlight how I've learned to live independent of the church. Do you notice none of those things? I, I, I didn't say, well, the, the church does that. The, the, the church does that. And all those things, I'm looking to someone else to be my most intimate community. And so the question for us is, what does it look like to be the body of Christ when we all live such individualistic lives? How do we become the body of Christ when we don't need each other and when we don't want to need each other? How do we become the body of Christ 
when we see the church as a voluntary society and have such a little commitment to it. The first thing we need to realize is we're not talking about turning back the clock. We're not talking about changing how an entire culture thinks and works. But I think we can recognize that there are certain things that we can do to understand what God is calling for us to do in the midst of community. And so I have just a few suggestions for that. Number one, be willing to acknowledge your own individualism. I I, I was struck by this passage several weeks ago that we read 1 Corinthians 12, 16. And And again, if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of a part of a body. And I pointed out functionally that happens all the time. I'm not an eye. I don't, I don't fit here. I don't belong here. And I go off here and I go off there and I may end up nowhere. And yet we have to realize and recognize that functionally we are acting as if we are independent of anyone else. I think acknowledge our own individualism also involves acknowledging what you like about living in an individualistic society. There are certain nice things about it, aren't there? I'm currently shopping for a long sleeve sun shirt. And I get to go to whatever store I want to go to to buy that. And I get to buy whatever color I want to buy, which is great because blue makes my eyes look amazing. Red, not so much. I like the fact that I can be at the center of so many of my decisions. But I have to realize that learning to put myself at the center of life can present a problem when it comes to living in the middle of a community of people. Number two, we need to remember that we, the call to build one another up. One of the things that is repeated often in scriptures talks about the body and about being together and why we are together is the concept of building each other up. So Ephesians 4.12 says that we have been equipped for the work of service in order to build up the body of Christ. Romans 14.9 talks about pursuing the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. 1 Corinthians 14.12 is talking about gifts. Paul reminds him to be zealous to edify or to build up the church. See, what my individualism does is it whispers to me, make it about me. And in the community of Christ, we are reminded that it is about him and it is about them far more than it is about me, myself, and I. And so maybe like Isaiah did, I simply need to pray, woe to me, for at the core of my bones, I am an individualist and I am surrounded by a group of people who are individualistic. We recognize that we are called to one another. And so I think that leads into this third uh, point of exploration is that we need to decide what type of relationship that God wants us to have with the church. Uh, We've talked about this before in other classes, but there are these two primary choices. The choice, there's a choice relationship and there's a covenant relationship. In a choice relationship, there is low commitment. It's performance-based. It's where you say, as long as you do this, I'm going to do that. It's kind of like a dating relationship. And, and we have so many places in our world where we have this sort of a choice relationship. We have a choice relationship with our employers. As long as you continue to treat me with respect and pay me the salary I think I deserve, then I'm going to work for you. But I imagine that if any of you, your boss said, you know what, this whole salary thing, we're not doing that anymore. I'm guessing a lot of you would make a different choice about where you work. Or what about this? The stores that we shop in, we have a choice relationship with our favorite stores. We say as long as you provide the best quality, as long as you provide the fastest service, as long as you provide the lowest prices, I'm going to continue to shop here. But if you don't, I'm leaving. And the question is, does God want us to have a choice relationship with the church? 
As long as the church continues to do this, as long as the church continues to provide this, as long as the church continues to reach this standard of my needs, then it seems like God might have something else in store. That something else may be a covenant relationship, which involves more commitment. It involves more permanence. It is a promise-based relationship. It says, I will do what I should do, whether you do what you should do or not. It's more like a marriage situation. It seems as I read scripture that God expects us to have some level of a committed relationship to the local church. Uh, Thinking of Colossians 3.13, Paul begins by saying, bear with one another. What that tells me is that when you are living in a group and a community of people, not every day will be peaches and sunshine. There will be times that you simply need to bear with, which means to put up to, to endure their, their weaknesses and their shortcomings. And we do that, why? Because we have a God who bore with us when we needed somebody to put up with us. Paul goes on to say, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. The only context whereby you have to forgive someone is when somebody else is doing wrong. That's going to be a part of what it means to live in a church is that somebody will wrong you in some way or hurt you in some way or offend you in some way. And Paul says the solution is not to separate over it, but instead to offer forgiveness so there can be healing and reunion. And then in verses 14 and 15, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in the one body and be thankful. We are to live in perfect harmony, and we've been called to be a part of one body. Now, living in a covenant relationship doesn't mean there's no legitimate reasons to ever leave. It simply means we don't approach it as something casual or something lighthearted. And the fourth, and maybe this is the most difficult, practice the art of not getting your way. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 and 8. In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and believers at that. When Paul says, why not rather be wronged? I want to raise my hand and say, I've got about 50 reasons why it's better to not be wronged. And that's my individualism pushing against this call to say, you know what, Craig, put yourself aside, be wronged in order that good can come to the community of believers. But there are some of these sort of things that I think we need to learn to practice them. I I mean, if, if, if the first time I'm called to give up what I want is in the midst of a lawsuit, I'm not very likely to do it. Maybe we need to figure out some practice steps along the way. And so here's just a couple of ideas as we can begin to practice not always getting our way. Find yourself, maybe this is in a home situation or in a work situation, go ahead and insist on collective actions with everyone participating. See, this is a little bit difficult for us because we say in my home, we all have our own phone. So if I don't like what you're watching, guess what I can do? I can just watch whatever I want. What would it look like for you as a family to say, we're going to all watch the same thing? It may even look like watching the sound of music sometimes. You'll survive. Promise you, you will. Or meals. Rather than I'm going to eat this and you're going to eat this and I'm going to... What would it look like for us to all do something 
together as a family? What would it look like in your workplace? What would it look like in church? When the song leader leads that song, that one you absolutely hate and cannot stand, that one that makes you cringe. And instead of allowing it to ruin our worship time together, what if you could celebrate the fact that no matter how you feel about it, clearly there's at least one other person who lights that song. And you rejoice in the fact that they rejoice in that. I think that we need to commit to these four processes because God has incorporated us into one flock, into the one church in which the spirit is the bond of peace and over which Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. And I think that we all need to recognize and to realize we score 91 out of 100 on our individualism, which means it's going to be tough for us. We're going to be asked to do things that we're not used to doing. We're going to have to work together in ways we often don't have to work together. But we have a God who lives as three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Unified. And God himself is the example of what it looks like to be different and yet to be united. How that happens, what that means for us in America, I'm not sure, but I know that God knows. And so I want us to conclude this morning by praying that God would direct us in this to allow us to become the kind of people he needs us to be, that we can be formed in the one body he's calling us into. So let's pray. Father, there are many things that we encounter that are beyond us. Maybe we can see steps or or things along the way. But Father, how do you take us as a people who are so used to getting what we want and form us into a loving community? My prayer simply is, Father, that you would do whatever is necessary for that to happen. And yes, I acknowledge that that means being willing to be wronged. To be willing to be upset about things. To be willing to stand by and to watch things go in a direction that I just personally don't like. But Father, you have created unity in the midst of hostility. You've done it in the past. You're doing it today. And we pray that you will continue to do it in the future. And specifically, we pray. Father, that you would do that in the midst of this very body that meets at 10th and Alderson, that we would experience the unity of the Spirit, that we would subject ourselves to the Good Shepherd, that we would recognize that you are calling all your people into one. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we realize that we go from here with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God knows the direction. God knows the solution. God knows the way. Uh, If you need anything this morning, if you want to respond, you've never fully responded to God's calling on your life, you have that opportunity. If you are at a particularly difficult place in your life and you want the prayers of the church, just invite you as we sing this next song to come and find us in the back. We'd be happy to pray with you. So let's stand together as we sing this song.